Welcome back, Serial Killers, to another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. And today is truly a mysterious deep dive because I have author VP Morris with me today as we discuss Jillian Flynn's Gone Girl. And I am so excited because what most of you probably don't know about me outside of my love of Disney and things, I am true crime obsessed. And so when VP pitched this to me, I was... My skin crawled. I was so excited. So VP, thank you. I'm super to excited to be here. and can talk about some true crime and some Gone Girl and some dark stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so introduce yourself mm -hmm. to the audience at home. Tell them a little, a little so bit. So I am a horror and thriller award-winning writer. I do short fiction novels and I have a audio drama podcast called The Dead Letters Podcast. And I just generally like things that are sort of dark and spooky and true crime-like. I love that. And you also have a new book out, which mm -hmm. we will discuss at the end of the show. And I'm so excited to hear more about it. So uh, our friend Pat Edwards connected us, uh, you know, uh, just because I find that's what the pod podcast mm -hmm. and writer's realm of the internet is. Everyone knows everybody else and it's a small world to connect. Uh, and so I was honestly floored when I was like, hey, just throw me some things that you're nostalgic about or that influenced you. And you throw out Gone Girl. And I went, and I immediately flooded back to when I saw it in theaters in undergrad and had to sit on the curb outside of the movie theater for about 30 minutes after because I was reeling. So what is it about this movie and maybe even the novel that it is based on that inspired you? To um, well, Jillian Flynn is my biggest inspiration. She's my favorite living author. And she just does such a good job of doing psychological thrillers with twists that you actually don't see coming. They're not just like these old school, like, oh, the butler did it or the boyfriend did it. They, they're just in deep and intense. Mm -hmm. And she writes women, I think, very well. And we can definitely talk about that more because that's the whole thing is that she writes mm -hmm. them with this really good, uh, like, dichotomy of good and evil. They're, they're, yes. No one's just like a stock character. And that's, that's why I love this movie and the book, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was something upon rewatch today. And I told you before we started recording, this is probably one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. And just because rarely as someone who I take in a lot of movies, um, rarely am I actually surprised when I'm sitting in the cinema. And when my friends and I saw it, we were literally turning to each other the whole time and just going, no one can see it at home, but it's like my hands on the side of my head. It was a truly twists that I did not see coming because of the clever crafting of the story. And I do think it's interesting that Jillian Flynn also wrote the screenplay, but I think it's imperative to why this is, in my opinion, fantastic storytelling because um, a lot of times I feel like there's a lot of disconnect when you have somebody that adapts a book who is mm -hmm. not the writer of the book um, because there's just nuances that get lost Um and things and so I the first thing to me today I rewatched it last night and I rewatched it this morning the the are are kind of three main female characters but also a really lovely supporting cast of female characters are so rich and dynamic in a way where all of them are really flawed but also so dynamic in a way that I don't want to look away from them <laughs> all, while they're on the screen. And I think that is something that like, while it's about Ben Affleck's character, 
it's really to me about the women in this and how Jillian Flynn crafts those. So why don't you talk a little bit about, in your opinion, as a, a fellow writer and as a fan, what is it that she does when she's crafting female characters that other authors? Well, just there's actually, if people are so inclined to go into the bowels of the internet, like pre 2010 or something pre 2012, she did this interview for the 92nd Y in New York city, which I had the opportunity to go to a, a similar event for Margaret Atwood, which was awesome. But um, she did a sort of similar thing and they recorded it and put it up on YouTube. I think it's still there, but this was, you know, before YouTube was like as big of a deal as it is now. Um, and she, you know, people were asking mm -hmm. her mm -hmm. about how does she write female characters so well? This was, I think, just at the launch of Dark Places. Um, and she said that she doesn't like how society stereotypes women as being like morally better than men, that it takes the same amount of effort for women to be mm -hmm. good, even if like statistically speaking, males commit more violent crime than women. They're still, you know, women still can do bad things. Mm -hmm. And she just didn't like that, you know, uh, women in books can sometimes be seen as like more virtuous just automatically. And she wanted to write characters that were realistic women that were both you know had realistic problems and could do horrible things but also you could see them justified at the same time and that's what really draws me to gone girl is like she's a mm -hmm. terrible person but you're also just like i hate your husband so you go do that thing <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something very interesting that I was, you know, because this movie goes on, the story keeps going to the point where it makes you uncomfortable, because most of the time we just get to see a story with a bow, whether it's a good bow or a bad mm -hmm. bow, it just wraps up, where this, it keeps going a little bit further into the story than we're comfortable watching, and I think that something beautiful about this movie is audience members often don't want to feel uncomfortable, and this movie every step of the way makes makes me feel uncomfortable in kind of the best kind of way um which i think lends to to what she's going for here because again i even beyond the women i was like mm -hmm. nobody in this story is a good person like they're not great people but honestly most <laughs> of us aren't great people we do dumb things we do awful things um so i i also want to preface to everyone listening Gone Girl has been out since 2013, the film. So uh, we're kind of spoiled. Yeah. I think you have to talk spoilers. You have to talk full plot when we're breaking this down today to talk about storytelling. Um, so uh, go watch it. It's on Hulu for free right now uh, <laughs> before you listen to the rest of this, I guess. Otherwise, let's launch in. Hi, I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon, and I'm the host of CPOV Autographs at CertainPOV.com. It is a bi-weekly interview series where I interview folks from all over the arts, from writers to comedians to magicians to musicians, even actors, historians, podcasters, pretty much anyone who's willing to chat with me for a little bit. If you like interesting conversations with even more interesting people, go to CertainPOV.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, music is life and life is good. So this is a really dynamic story and there is, I guess I'm learning now, there's always been kind of a human obsession with true crime, about loss, about crime, those kinds of things. But with podcasts and, and whatnot, we're seeing a huge explosion of um, true crime really dominating the media and more people than ever becoming investing in those kinds of stories that previously they might not have. I mean, even if we're just talking about the realm of like women in true mm -hmm. crime of like 
My Favorite Murder, Crime Junkie, Helen Gone, um, all the work Delia D'Amber does on her own outside of uh, the uh, Crime Junkie Girls. Um, we're seeing so many people jump into this genre that I also, I think, borders along mm-hmm. horror and suspense because there is always a suspense. What do you think it is about true crime, whether it is fictionalized true crime or it is uh, true stories? What is it? that appeals maybe it appeals to you but what do you think it is the mass appeal that draws people well i think people want to know why supposedly good people do bad things because you know no one is really born mm-hmm. bad at least in my opinion you know there's some people who might disagree because it's a big philosophical mm-hmm. question but um you know i don't think anyone you know at age 10 is like i'm going to grow up to murder my whole family like it's not it, um you know, a, a life goal, at least I would hope it's not. Um, and we kind of want to know with, you know, if you believe like the Amy side of the story before like the big reveal, um, people might be wondering why did this normal guy allegedly kill his wife, which we find out, you know, obviously he did not kill his wife, but that's the, the narrative that they're painting. And for a lot of cases where there is unfortunately like, you know, intimate partner violence, people wonder, oh, they were so happy. And then he kills her, she kills him, or there's, you know, it just goes wrong in a million different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think people want to know why does it take this turn for the the worst or like, how, and almost like, how can I almost prevent it happening to me, even though I don't think there's any way to be 100% safe from crime. It's just like a good way to, I don't know, see what went wrong in these people's lives. Mm-hmm. I I agree. I also think what I found is uh, also a lot of true crime fans <laughs> I'm also learning are women and gay men. Um, and, um, and I think it's also something, just listening to a lot of podcasts, I think there's this beautiful agency that reclaiming the fear that women have been Mm -hmm. instilled with by society because it's always the woman's job to protect themselves, quote unquote. It's not actually, but women Mm -hmm. have been taught since they are girls that it is their job to protect themselves. And I think it somehow gives them agency and it gives them strength to know that like they can protect themselves. And if, you know, it's okay to be rude and not like speak to a man just because he's being polite to you. Like you don't need to be polite. Um, and and I think those are some it's it gives some wonderful messages. Um, I think also I think there's this interest in the macabre of maybe it's also just because we're coming out of a year where everything has been kind of fucked and weird. Um, but I know I found a little solace myself in going back to these stories that might have been previous cold cases or things that are now also getting new life and they're getting researched again and they're getting reopened, which I think is very cool, uh, personally. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's jump in. What are some things for you as a fan, but also as a writer creator, what are some things that Jillian Flynn and also uh, David Fincher, who's the director who kind of specializes in this tone of film, what are some things for you that they just do right right out of the gate or some things that are stand out for you man i mean i love dave fincher um one of my other favorite films is the girl with the dragon tattoo that he did and it has a similar kind of ominous Mm -hmm. feel to it and i like that he is able to just paint a tone with the soundtrack because he uses um trent reznor a lot in his work so he's obviously Mm -hmm. a master Mm -hmm. at creating emotion through sound and then he's just able to capture images that 
uh, like in the very opening, we kind of get a, a tour of this Missouri town that is very um, kind of almost on the brinks of collapse economically because it's right after the recession. And, mm-hmm. you know, no one comes on because a, a lesser movie might have like a, a a person on the radio being like, well, the Dow is down duh, 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 today. He doesn't have to tell us mm-hmm. this is a hard time. He just shows like a, a warehouse with broken windows and um, homeless men walking down the street and just like these big, beautiful mansions sitting empty like, and with this like ominous score on top of it. And you just get that feeling of like something's not right here without, you know, someone having to come on screen and explain to you that they're in a hard time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I find it's especially Fincher does this a lot. He shows and doesn't tell and he lets the audience build a lot and he gives you he gives you all the information that you need, but he makes you have to come to a lot of the conclusions or have to put a lot of the things together yourself. Because um, even in those first moments, having. Uh, Nick's character go Mm -hmm. to the bar in the morning as we see him kind of forlorn immediately puts the audience have it gives them an opinion of Nick it automatically makes you think things about this man that we're about to learn some very startling things about him Um, that uh, I think again it's it's one of those beautiful things where they're both subtle and completely unsubtle with their ability to tell the story Um, where you know, he's heavy when they need to be heavy, but he also will leave you in silence with just the underscore, which, which like you said, because it is Trent Reznor, it elicits feelings in a way that are going to be purer and realer for the audience than them sitting there telling you how you should feel. Yeah, exactly. And the, the opening shot of it, I think it's like nine in the morning and Nick is already drinking whiskey and his sister is just like, are you sure? And he's like, yes, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And so even, you know, if you didn't know the plot at all, like if you didn't even have any idea about Gone Girl, you were just kind of like, well, he's clearly not at least, at the very least he's being unproductive. Like he's just, he's committed to day drinking at nine. He's not mm-hmm. like a go-getter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Well, and as you find out that he's like a community <laughs> college writing professor and things, you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, I mean, and then when they introduce the the uh, college age girlfriend, you're like, oh, you are the guy that we think you are. Oh, no. Oh, no. But again, that's part of the brilliance. And I will also say for me, this movie is split into obviously it's split into two very large parts. Um, but they did this beautiful thing of actually switching the tone and perspective in a way that I didn't realize the first few times I saw this movie. And while we understand that we're going from kind of Nick's point of view to um, Amy's point of view, and obviously because we're then Mm -hmm. following Amy on her trajectory of the time, the score changes completely, the sound of the score and the tension within the score so that we are almost feeling from Amy's perspective to better understand her while in the first half we are just as confused as Nick is even when we're starting Mm -hmm. to put those pieces together. Um, And they only give us as much information as we need and there are those moments where we do know about the diary before Nick does, which, you know, puts us on edge. And I think that is something for me that is always a stand-up moment of how they put us in both of their, um, I don't want to say both of their places, but we are, the audience is forced to feel a lot of the same things Mm -hmm. that our main characters are feeling. 
even if that's that confusion for Amy, but also the the calculations of Amy of figuring out what she's doing and where she's going and how she is managing to stay a step ahead of Nick, even when they think they are, you know, they're right where, um, uh, Amy, you know, where they need to. Exactly. I think that has to do with Jillian writing the screenplay because she is obviously so intimately acquainted with her characters that she's able to translate that over to film Easily, And when reading the book, you kind of have the same thing where, you know, you know, the spoiler at this point already that she's actually alive. But when they're going through like the police procedural aspect, you still almost feel this like, oh, my God, where is his wife? Even though, you know, she's fine. She's on the lam. Yeah. And he walks through their house and it's all like messed up. And you kind of feel like, oh, my God, someone abducted his wife. But, you know, that's not true. But you still have that. He's able to convey that sense of urgency that there's something amiss without you just being like, Oh, just wait for the reveal. It's no big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there, another thing that she does when we're kind of watching Amy as uh, we're, I question at those moments I go, Oh, well, she still kind of looks like herself, which again, you know, pays off. And there's that interesting moment where we realize that all of the torture Amy's gone through is, a lot of her own psychological mm-hmm. torture of herself that started from childhood trauma. And when we realize that the first time we actually experience, we have her experiencing trauma is when, um, when the, that the methed out couple in the Ozarks yeah. like beat the crap out of her and take her money. And it's the first time. And it's when she starts to get messy. Um, and that's, because it's one of those things I was like, well, your hair didn't really change. Ooh, glasses, Superman girl, you got this. But it's, it's, they do this beautiful thing where we watch her slowly become unhinged. And even though she's still in control of the narrative, she's starting to lose that control. And it's a really kind of beautiful ride through the end of, of the thing. And I've got to say, Rosamund Pike is a phenomenal actress because she, has a hab well she i feel like she's gotten typecast as the cold mm-hmm. unlikable woman because that's what hollywood does yeah. and it's unhealthy <laughs> but she does a beautiful job of while she's unlikable she finds moments where we still sympathize with her i don't know if we side with her but there's still those moments where we question whether we are on her side but I can't look away from her. Um, uh, she just released a new movie where it's it's very similar of the tone where the, where she's being known for taking care of older or taking advantage of older people, and it's a very similar tone. But she still does this thing where I can't look away from her. I want to look at her the whole time because she you can watch her go through emotion you watch her see things for the first time you watch her hear things for the first time which for a lot of movie stars we don't get that kind of beautiful aspect of the listening and the seeing which is the biggest part of the story and i'll give ben affleck a a thing he does the same thing in this movie Uh, i think this whole cast does a really wonderful job of not playing the end of the story 
um, which, you know, can happen when you're making a film because you're filming <laughs> out of order. And you all typically, a lot of times you will know the, the ending of the story ahead of time, but I think all of them, um, it's also one of the only times I've really enjoyed Neil Patrick Harris. Uh, I am not widely known. I'm not well known out there as a Neil Patrick uh, Harris lover because I am not a big fan, but I'll also like, he kind of committed to this, but they also, and I'm going to attribute it to a lot of what Reznor does. We are put so on edge every time he's on screen because I think they're pointing to this fact of we're supposed to live in that headspace with Amy of we don't trust him, but she knows mm -hmm. that he's a means to an end. Um, and they really, both of them commit so beautifully to that, that it just, the first time I saw it because I didn't know what happened to the end of that story, I was... I literally stood up and screamed in the theater. I think the first time when, when his throat gets slit and I just, I, I couldn't. Um, but I think it's a beautiful place of we don't see a Fincher doesn't do a lot of unnecessary mm -hmm. violence and gore. He only uses it when he needs it, which is something I think I, is also super effective. Yeah, that's actually my favorite scene in the entire movie, even though it's obviously the most brutal. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, there's always a moment where one of the characters, usually the protagonist, reveals their true self. And I feel like when she is in that nighty covered in his blood, it's her because she's both a mix of sex appeal and danger. And it's like this this is who yes. she is because yes. both Nick and Desi want her to be this the sexual side, the feminine side of her, the this perfect kind of trophy to just keep in the house. And she plays that part with Nick and she mm -hmm. plays that part with Desi. And when she thinks, realizes things are going south with Desi, she has to pull out the violent side and she just does it so well. She just can like switch it. It's like, oh, I'm not your plaything anymore. I'm the, the dominant one in this relationship. Like you didn't have any power to begin with. And it's just a great moment. Mm -hmm. And it's so, it's so interesting because it is literally all, it always to me, uh, this is something that's so old and so ingrained in her because her trauma, whether she realizes it or not, goes back to literal childhood. Um, and uh, there's these moments that play out. There's a duality in how they wrote and filmed the party scene of mm -hmm. Amazing Amy's wedding or the wedding announcement with her and Desi. And there are these little things of where some of the jump shots are the same or the lighting is the same and the way that her her kind of edge is. And so it's a lot of these moments where her parents are such a secondary character, but in a way they're the true villains of this whole story. Not to, but you know, not saying that you can do whatever you want because you have unprocessed childhood trauma. That is not what I'm saying, but it is one of those interesting things where she's been so coded since childhood as she's supposed to be this thing that people are going to want, but because she couldn't be it, she always had this reminder that there's a better version of herself that people would actually want to fall in love with. Um, which is really interesting when Nick says, oh, I had to pretend to be this man that she wanted and I just couldn't keep it up anymore. And realizing that they were both putting on this act for each other. And, it, and you know, at any given point, it could have fallen apart and they could have gone different ways. But, you know, they're, they're both so connected to the trauma and almost addicted to that trauma at that point that it's in the tragedy that it's it's how the story has to play out. Now, for me, someone who 
never gets credit for this movie, but is a amazing performance as Missy Pyle. Um, as uh, oh god, I forget the character. She's the um, very Nancy oh, Grace, right. um, yes. conservative television reporter who they, who ends up interviewing them at the end, and she is so phenomenal because there's also such a commentary on mainstream media and kind of this obsession with the 24 hour news cycle and how it can so heavily negatively affect the actual outcome of a well-followed trial, which I think is a huge social commentary. Um, because you know, 2013, uh, the book came out first, obviously uh, for, you know, obviously. Um, but 2013, 2014, we're getting to a point where everyone is obsessed with social media. All age groups of people have social media. They are constantly on their phones. We're getting broad, uh, bandwidth phones who can support video at all times of day and unlimited data packages. So there's this really interesting commentary for me of how, if it had been even five or six years earlier, how there would have been less knowledge widely of what was happening. And so there could have been some more uh, kind of private investigation of this. The police could have done, uh, you know, a closer job. And I also rarely side with police in this, in, mo in movies, projects things often in true crime stories we go oh the police really <laughs> impeded anything good happening but i do also end up feeling very bad for for mm -hmm. our our female investigator in this in this story you feel awful for her because uh 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 ronda uh, the detective detective Bo boney boney uh played by kim dickens and she does a brilliant job um i think because we see that every step of the way she's also re-questioning what she thinks she knows and and what how good of a job her department is doing. Um, it's also interesting, I think, that most of the men in the department never are on Nick's side, and she's on Nick's side yeah. until she physically cannot be anymore, which I think says a lot about the character, because normally anyone else, and typically men who would be writing the true crime, I feel like she'd be the first person who would be like, I told y'all he was the bad guy mm -hmm. all along. I told you he was the worst. But she really, I think, believes him until she physically can't, and I think that actually helps the story for us to still find reasonable doubt to Yeah, um, in the book, him. there's a lot more of her, which is really nice, and um, her and Nick actually meet yeah. up, like, every weekend after Amy has returned to try to pin this whole fake death thing on her, which adds, like, I mean, you don't have time to do that in a mm -hmm. movie, but I liked that she was using her own like personal time to continue working right. on a case that everyone thought was closed, but it wasn't, you know, it's not closed that she was believing him. And he is the one who actually calls it off, but she wants to keep meeting and keep trying to pin it on Amy. But when Amy does the pregnancy announcement, he realizes that he can't send the mother of his child to prison. So he just has to let it happen. Right. Yeah, there's, I feel you, you do feel for him and Margot specifically. I think, I think I end up looking at Margot in that last scene with the two of them together, which is exemplary acting uh, between the two of them. That Margot really is one of them. I think she might be the most effective because she's going to have to watch what happens over the next 18 years. And 
pretend to love a child and pretend to be okay with, with Amy, because then my question is, well, what happens when Amy is just no, when doesn't, when she doesn't need Nick anymore? Like, when is it going to be better for her to be the, the, the bold and brave single mother of a teenager and, and Nick has drank himself. Like there's this narrative, like when I understand why, uh, Detective Boney would want to keep going because th mm -hmm. this kind of thing is never going to be over. Like, there's no way this is going to be over. Amy is going to continue to do things like this. And so it's like, when is the next thing that like, you know, she drives Margot out or, you know, drives Margot insane or kills, you know, finds mm -hmm. a way for Nick to die. You know, it's, uh, there are just so many other ways that the story could keep going. So I under, I understand why those characters would still be, questioning what's happening also because we're watching Amy produce their life. We're watching both of them have to produce each other um, in a way that, you know, it's funny when Tyler Perry's character goes, Oh man, you're reality TV now. And it's like, Oh, they are because he's going to have to be told how to live every aspect of his life literally until yeah. the end of his days. Um, you know, is, is this one of those moments where she's just eventually going to go, you know, you could always just leave us. You could always just take care of it. And, you know, it's just, it's awful. Because even in those, the final shot of the movie, when she's like laying on his chest and she looks up very coldly and with an edge and then softens. And it's one of those, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, this will never be over. This kind of story is never over. It's just done for now. And it kind of, it gives you the best for me. It gives me that kind of true crime chills up my. Oh spine, yeah, it's very creepy. Um, that I think are um, something that I I love is the costume designer and how they dress Amy throughout this movie and kind of how they show a journey of her through what she's wearing while she's trying to blend in, but also knowing that she knows how to play the character so well at this point that she always knows how to dress to present to help play that character. And it's just a very subtle nod. And maybe it's just cause I am a costume designer. And so these are the things I look at, but it's, you know, those moments of color choice or textile choice, um, even, that she lets her face get sunburnt. And I, I know that goes into to the hair and makeup department, but like blending in that idea that like she had this like perfectly alabaster skin that was like she wore so much makeup mm -hmm. that it looked like she wore no makeup as as Amy the wife. But then when she's, you know, Nancy, Amy on the run, she lets her skin be, get pigmented and and her, you know, eyebrow grow together and just those things which they're very subtle choices that I think were really smart and actually helped drive home this kind of character's deterioration a lot. Um, uh, what are some other things for you that, that just really stand out that just work so effectively um, for this? Well, I mean, movie? my, my favorite moments, uh, it's the cool girl monologue, which everyone, I mean, everyone loves the cool girl monologue and, um, it's almost verbatim in the book. There's some, some word choices that are changed. I think it's shortened, but that is the moment where not only is it revealed that she pulled this whole stunt off, but it's basically the thesis statement, I think, for the book, or at least for the female version or the female perspective on the book, is that not only did her parents make her put on Amazing Amy, 
as a child, she now has to be the cool girl to attract men. And I feel like cool girl is just amazing Amy grown up that she has to be down for whatever. She can't complain. Mm -hmm. She can't have her own personality. And back to your like costume thing, I almost wonder if Amy has any real preferences to clothing or if she's always been wearing a costume because, um, you know, she's like the sleek New Yorker with like, you know, black dress. And then she, you know, gets a little bit more, I don't want to say dowdy, but just like more casual in the the Midwest. And then, you know, when she's on the lamb, she's very Mm -hmm. frumpy and it's like, she can just transition and it doesn't seem Mm -hmm. like she cares. Like she doesn't really care that, Oh, this is my favorite color or that's my favorite dress. It's kind of just like, Oh, I need to be the, Mm -hmm. the sexy cocktail dress wearing girl today. And I need to be the frumpy Midwesterner today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think she has almost no actual opinions of of a lot of things about herself. Now, for a lot of my friends who are native New Yorkers, there is an ambivalence that I find that comes with people who like grew up and live in New York. There is a different standard, especially when it comes to like money, class and things. But I think it offered there was an ambivalence that was able to offer her that she was able to lean into Amy. Because what's so interesting is you would think for someone who is also a writer in things and maybe she was just a writer because that's what her parents wanted her to do or her parents were writers. Um, the shrine in her office to amazing Amy is, is such a shocking detail to me because it would be the one place where I think she could excuse, she can make an excuse to not have it there. Um, because it's also so much in a, in kind of a set dressing way, it's so much more large and focal than the place where she has her two mm-hmm. Ivy league degrees like that. It's such a small, simple part of the wall. And then the largest chunk of the room is to a shrine of her younger self through the lens of amazing Amy, which I think is a choice of kind of showing constant psychological mm-hmm. degradation 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 (laughs) oh my god (laughs) i can't degradation of her mental prowess of the things that it's kind of leading her to because it's one of those things when you are constantly reminded of your trauma and the things that are impacting you you know i think it's there to remind her that she's no matter what she's playing a different version of amy and that no one to her cares what the real version of amy is because not even nick is in love with the quote unquote real version of Amy um, because she also, I don't think knows who the real version of Amy is where Nick, there's a very real version of Nick. We know who that, you know, Missouri farm boy is because he becomes that quickly in the relationship where Amy can't put it aside because I don't think there is a neutral version of Amy that she understands what to do with because she's never she's it's never been necessary for her to have that neutral version i think she feels that she's Um, nothing because we can eat yeah no 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 you're good um i was gonna say that we even see that in the two relationships with the other men now while you know while there's still some question of you know the way they describe her it's always her physical attributes first and then quirky personality traits after that that they liked of her um But, you know, or, you know, I still question the validity of a man that goes, you know, in the ass of a 20 year old and you're (laughs) like, "Mm. sir, I'm not going to be on your side. Uh, Sir, I can't be on your side. Um, 
because again, I, it goes back to that idea that no, nobody in the story is a good or perfect person. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's the moment I start feeling bad for Amy thinking that it's like the girl has never had an opportunity to be herself or figure out who she is because it wasn't necessary or it wasn't beneficial to her parents or the people around her. So she was kind of doomed from the beginning to live a life where she never got to figure out who she was as a person. Um, the book me is the only Mm -hmm. living child. She would have been hope nine, but they decided to name and she in the book said I'm going to join the rest of the hopes So it's like she wants to live. And um, at one point she mentions how she kind of wishes that she was like a, a stillbirth because then she didn't have to live up to, to anything. Like if you're a, a child who dies, you're forever perfect in your parents' eyes, where if you keep living, especially as you get towards like a teenagehood, you're going to start to rebel and separate. And they didn't want that happening. And I think Amazing Amy was a way of mm-hmm. keeping their idealistic daughter like under control is that she will always have to be perfect in print mm-hmm. or in real life. Oof. That's so heavy. Now I really want to read this novel. Now I'm going to have to add that to my list now. Um uh, I'm I'm so blown cuz then honestly this all kind of goes back to the trauma of her parents and arguably maybe amazing Amy's mm-hmm. the only thing that kept them together because we I mean it's it's also it's a kind of a known fact that couples who experience um, miscarriages and loss of children, they have a very difficult time moving forward and processing through because that is a massive amount of loss for anyone to have to experience. And so experiencing nine times, I'm sure that put a lot of strain on them as a couple to then have this one child who you just wanted the best for them, but you wanting the best turned into this idea of them never feeling like they could be, perfect which kind of dooms yeah. that from the beginning it's, it's a heavy bummer it's like yeah that, that's what's great about <laughs> the book is it kind of just adds more layers like i think the screenplay they did a good job of getting everyone's kind of like personality out there with as little detail as possible so that you don't have this like five hour long movie mm-hmm. but the book kind of adds just like a little bit of like seasoning to mm-hmm. everyone's backstory because you can sort of get all of those that information that you know we don't have time to go into her parents you know unfortunate past and um and stuff like that and i think that mm-hmm. she might hang on to the amazing amy like imagery in her office because it's like kind of like the 
I, like something to hang on to. It's, it's sort of like if you have a parent who's abusive in like a different way, like this is like the most bougie privileged way you could be abused is that your parents have a best-selling book about you. Um, but like, you know, there are people who've had, you know, been like beaten by their fathers and yet they still like send him a card on Father's Day or they still like go do his errands or whatnot as he gets older. They can't just like let go because then it would sort of acknowledge the trauma. And I think that she... It's like, oh, if I, I just need to hold on to amazing Amy because like maybe it, it was a good thing where it's like a way of trying to make things seem better than they were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I, it's the, the thing I like about it is these none of these people feel like archetypes or stereotypes at all. I feel like they feel so fully fleshed out and that Flynn herself lived with these characters to figure out who they were to to make sure that we see them for their good qualities, but also are able to focus in on their mm-hmm. imperfect qualities. So now I have a question since you you know the book. Um, is there anything that you feel in the adaptation that they didn't do effectively that you wish they had done or something that got left out that you really think could have added to the story? Yes, there is actually another victim of Amy that we don't get to meet in the film. Um, we all know that, you know, I think his name is Tommy, oh. the man she accused of rape, but it wasn't true. Um, before um, him in boarding school during her high school years, she befriended like the unpopular girl and basically kind of turned her into a lackey and then faked a bunch of stuff to make it seem like she was stalking Amy and then got a restraining order. And I think they got her kicked out of the elite boarding school. And um, it, it kind of shows that what I like about that is that her victims aren't just male or they're not just like someone she had a relationship with that they are, they can just be platonic female friends. Like she doesn't have just like a bone to pick with men who've done her wrong. She has a bone to pick with anyone who's upset her. And um, this this female friend, after she gets kicked out of the boarding school and has to go back home, she receives an anonymous letter in the mail. And it's just a checklist of everything she did wrong, mm-hmm. according to Amy, like not wait for her at lunch or um, didn't help her with homework or just didn't compliment her hair on a certain day. It's like all these little like nitpicky sociopathic things that the average person would not even notice if their friend, you know, missed, um, you know, eating lunch with them one day out of like a hundred, but she noticed. And it just shows that she's like, she keeps these like scores in her head of with her romantic partners and with her friends, like you didn't do this on this day. And that's why you deserve to be punished. Cause like she even is upset that Nick doesn't remember her favorite ice cream. Like, that might cause like a minor spat in a regular marriage, but with her, it's like, oh, you deserve to die. Mm-hmm. Well, so I have a question because she seems in the moments where they're walking us through each of the amazing Amy titles in the in the party, it seems like those were moments that maybe she could have been punished by her parents for not doing well. And so then they wrote the book is is that alluded to in the book at all that maybe that behavior of Amy came from a learned or taught behavior because that is how um, there's no mention of like child. discipline or, or harshness I think there's just a sense of that kind of we're not mad we're disappointed which can sometimes I mean maybe not worse mm-hmm. but it's just not pleasant for a child but she, that scene plays out mm-hmm. almost I- identically of that you know 
I quit the cello, she became a prodigy sort of thing. So I think it's sort of a, her parents might've been sort of just like watching for her to do something, you know, she would start something and she'd get rewarded for it. And then it would become a book and then she would quit it, but they wouldn't allow the character to fail. And I feel like she sees other people like characters. It's like, I cast Nick in the role of my husband, but he isn't living up to my dream man. He's a slob who wants to drink beer and play video games. So I have to fix this. It's so heavy. There's some, I mean, I, God, I feel like we could talk about this. I feel like mm-hmm. you could do a whole podcast series just on, well, obviously the the work of Jillian Flynn, but this, the, it's so nuanced and interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, I wished, I wonder if there's a way we could have gotten that story added to the film because I think it would have added something interesting because it does, I think there's something devious about having only focusing on the male victims where there would be something that would allude to a deeper trauma if we had known that it went back further. And while, you know, that does create the idea of a sociopath, mm-hmm. it's very obvious that she is kind of a sociopath in, in this, but um, if we'd gotten that, I think, or if we'd even met that girl or if she'd reached out to, to Nick in some way, I, I just wonder if there'd been a way to get that. Cause I think it would have been, an interesting nuance to add though they mm-hmm. do cram a lot of story into two and a half hours that, that is something i will give them it is a very effective use of two and a half hours for them. i don't think it, it's a, a loss i just think it would have added a, a another flavoring behind her character that she's not just dangerous to the men she's interested in she's dangerous to pretty much anyone and it also i think would even make her being close to noelle who's the pregnant woman um a little bit more more obvious that she was manipulative towards her female friends because she could, you know, easily lead this kind of well-meaning mother down a bad path, which she, you know, she basically uses her as like a, an alibi that like, Oh, Nick beat me. Nick did this, Nick did that. And Noel just kind of eats it up and is willing to tell the world about it. And she calls mm-hmm. the local women idiots or implies that not just Noel, but it's all the local women. And so, you know, I, it could have been interesting because then it would also explain why she doesn't have relationships with mm-hmm. other people, especially other women, because you would think that maybe in the first place you go, you would make friends in the town or the people that live around you. Um, who, you know, are around, whether you have something in common with them, most people would naturally look to ally themselves with someone else just to have someone around. But I think also it is implied that Amy has spent so much of her life on her own uh, for various reasons that, that it just makes, it doesn't make sense for her too. But it's also why Nick doesn't question that it's weird that she doesn't have friends or he doesn't particularly know what she does other than just reading throughout the day or he doesn't know when she's not there. Yeah, I love that, that, um, Um, you know, the police is like, oh, your wife's best friend. And he's like, she doesn't have a best friend. And it's just like a great moment of making him seem like a fool for not knowing who his wife is friends with. But there's there's also in the police station, there's this great little Mm -hmm. moment. It's between... Rhonda and I forget the name of the male cop, but they're 
they're interrogating him about what oh, knowing yes. his wife's blood type and then he goes and leaves to make a phone call and the the male mm-hmm. cop is like should i know my wife's blood type and and ron is like no nah, don't worry about it so it's clear that they're just like giving nick a hard time about yep. something that they're not even worried about as cops <laughs> yeah jim gilpin he's so interesting he's a broadway actor which i thought was very interesting uh to have in this um uh but i that scene always cracks me up because he's suddenly you know because he spends the whole time talking about his wife um uh and and it just kind of proves how that nick is still not a lot like the other people where he's from so it makes sense that he would have left and gone to new york um, cause Nick isn't like a lot of those and neither is Margot, but you know, Margot's the child that had to stay to take care of the parents. Um, and, and whatnot. I'm, uh, I read that Flynn accredits notes on a scandal and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf as influences on her writing. And in particular, the plots and themes of gone girl, which I love who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, it's one of my favorite plays and there's so seeing that now there's so much of that, that uh, um, puts together in this because Mark, the character of Martha and the character of Amy are so similar. Martha's just much older. Um, it's, it's kind of terrifying to think that even though who's afraid of Junior Wolf is the sixties that both George and Martha could end up being Nick and Amy in the way that, Alpie constructs their relationship and how they're goading this other young couple is very similar to how Amy goads and kind of twists and produces the conversation and the flow between her and Nick. And then how that goes for everyone, which uh, again, it's one of those things when I see what a, a lot of authors influences are, I, I always just go, Oh, that makes so much sense. I see that here, here and here. Um, but I think she does it in a really beautiful way that's not contrived. Yeah, it feels the, like um, super original, even though obviously like a couple fighting isn't anything new. It's just a a new take on it. And and also um, uh, her uh, real life inspiration is the uh, uh, the trial of Scott Peterson for the death of Lisey uh, Peterson back in like, I think, 04. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's so many things that yes. Nick does that Scott did in real life, like um, appearing kind mm-hmm. of smug and self-important to the media, um, doing a bunch of really mm-hmm. sketch things, having a younger mistress that he wouldn't tell the world about until like later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I mean, the real Scott like made a run for the border, but sh- thankfully Nick never was stupid enough to try. But it's just like all these like... Yeah. You know, Nick didn't doesn't mean to, and I, and maybe Scott did not even mean to appear mm-hmm. so sketchy. Um, but it's just like he, they can't help it. It's almost like they're they're just naturally, even from their perspective, it makes sense why they're behaving a certain way. But to the world, it's like, oh, he totally killed her. <laughs> Well, and you've got these men who are kind of doofuses in their everyday life who have never had to think about being a public figure and have never had to speak in front of people who are suddenly on an international stage again listening i've been oddly enough listening to a lot of things about scott and Lacey peterson recently and again we still aren't sure to this day kind of what has happened you know there's a lot of assumptions and it's awful what happened but again there's um one of those things that we only know the story that we're kind of given um and we can't always expect these people who are from 
who are never part of the limelight to suddenly have to be thrust into it to know how to handle the best situations every time they have to be like photographed or, or things, especially when it's so easy to have a photo go digital and go viral quickly. That scene with the woman who's like, Ooh, Mm -hmm. she's like flirting with him and then suddenly gets really creeped out by him. But those are those moments that I remember directly from the, uh, Scott Peterson trial, but also like Jody Jody Aria when 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 her trial happened in Casey Anthony, all those things are those moments of, um, you know Jody Aria and Casey Anthony. Those went very very differently, um, but you know there are these moments of everybody is critical of every moment of them, but you know they don't, you know none of us know how to really talk to a, <laughs> talk talk in front of mm-hmm. all of these news cameras and being followed constantly and being worn down. And so um, this is not me being apologist for any of their actions. This is just, you know, stating that, you know, it is, it is going to be awkward and uncomfortable. And in those moments are going to be hard for people to see and easy to take out of context and detract from some of the actual facts. Yeah. Of the, it, it makes me wish that um, it, um, in the United States, we had a harsher paparazzi laws. Um, like in, I think the Europe in Europe, certain countries have like, you have to be X amount of feet or it has to be during certain hours. You can't do it at night. You can't be around their children. And mm-hmm. the thing is like, you could be famous for being a singer or you can suddenly become famous for potentially murdering your wife or your child or whatnot. And you're not getting your fair due because these people are just like, hounding you like you're Britney Spears in 2007 and they're not mm-hmm. giving you their your fair day in court. Mm-hmm. And all famous kind of consider the same fame. And so whether, you know, it's that idea of no bad, no bad, mm-hmm. no press is bad press. Um, and that's not necessarily true that because again, when these people get so worn down and they're being watched constantly, I mean, the paparazzi is, killed people from their actions of trying. I mean, we still point to the idea of princess Diana that like she could still be alive today. Had there been harsher penalties. I know when the, my favorite murder girls, I believe they went to Scotland or Ireland and they were going to talk about a case and they actually got in trouble and had to pull something because they were talking about an ongoing Mm -hmm. case, which is illegal to talk or have any media presentation of ongoing cases. I was either there or Australia. I forget where it was, but a lot of these countries have a huge crackdown. And so, because if they have to go to a retrial or there is an acquittal or there has to be an appeal and they need to get another jury, it has to be a jury of your peers that has no following of what is happening. Um, And when you've got, you're constantly seeing these people, but then they're also like, let's, let's talk about Joe exotic for a second. Like that is a more, it's, and that was like, while I love the idea of documentary storytelling and how far it has come and how accessible, like, cause I remember 10 years ago being the kid that liked documentaries and I was fucking weird. And now everybody's like, have you watched the new doc- docudrama mm-hmm. about Britney on Hulu? Have you watched the new documentary series about a woman that got thrown down her staircase? Like, it's these things that I was like what do you mean you're sitting here and watching 15 hours of true crime or documentaries finally to like figure things out? But it's, you know, the thing people came away with at the end of tiger King is that Joe is somehow a celebrity or Carol Baskin deserved to go on yeah. dancing with the stars. Like it's one of those things that I feel <laughs> like 
I didn't realize how current that case was until that final episode happens. And you're like, this was two years ago. This was literally two years ago. He was just in court. Um, not even like a year ago. And that, you know, we can make jokes about Joe wanting to get an acquittal from Trump right before he leaves office. But like, those are things that these stories we don't necessarily need to have in such a soap opera version of them, I guess there's such an obsession with us knowing now. And I guess that could be what we could talk about the dark side of true crime and the dark, the the dark side of it as a popular genre internationally is that these people are suddenly celebrities and Mm -hmm. shouldn't necessarily be celebrities because even if they didn't do it, you know, there is still some fault along the way for a lot of people and you're not completely out of the woods. Uh, even if you were found not guilty, it doesn't mean you weren't involved in some way, shape or form, but then people are remembering the internet memes or they're remembering the funny thing that person did and not that at the end of the day, there are still victims. There are still people that we have lost. There are people whose lives have been so negatively affected by that whole story. The, the, the versions of it that we don't, get along the way, which is often, I think what's awful Mm -hmm. about this kind of 24 hour news cycle and TMZ and the paparazzi and that constant, I mean, we've got, you know, people have been joking about free Britney for years, but we're finally having this conversation of, Oh, she's had no actual agency for her. 12, yeah. 12, 15 years. I I don't remember the time frame, but yeah, that's crazy that she's been so productive. Like she's had like a residency at Vegas and yet she is, like deemed mentally incompetent. So it's like, what? Mm-hmm. And we've been able to joke about it for years. And suddenly, suddenly comedians and people on Twitter are like, I'm with Britney. We, these are why things And I was like, girl, your entire career was like press Hilton for a second. His entire disgusting career was on the back of celebrities that he ruined who are now have been, you know, negatively affected by the constant words and things. And so, Uh, You know, while I love true crime and I would never, I I hate this idea that some of these people are going to now, you know, or, you know, when we have found out more things about Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy and suddenly we had these like real life movies of their lives and people were like, "Mm -hmm, I'm so hot for Ted Bundy. And I was like, no, you're hot for Zac Efron, but let's talk about this for a second where this is just not. Yeah, it's um, on a slight tangent. Um, I'm researching for another book I'll be writing that has to do with a mass shooting. So I've been reading a lot on the Columbine massacre and there's a lot of Mm -hmm. um, fangirls for the perpetrators. And there's also, um, I think, I can't remember the exact number, but it's definitely over a hundred mass shootings that can be linked back to their their shooting that they follow a similar MO. Mm -hmm. And... um, the media doesn't want to acknowledge this because they either focus, depending on you know what side of the spectrum, they either focus on mental health or on um, on gun rights, which either can have an effect. But no one mm-hmm. in the media, because obviously they're not going to criticize themselves, will admit that they played a big role in the reason why there's copycats of that massacre. Because I mean, they were on like mm-hmm. covers of magazines for like years after there was like a, a, a whole almost little industry around reporting on this particular massacre, which I understand it was a a big deal at the time. So you don't want to not talk about it, but the fact that they made them into almost Mm -hmm. rock stars um, is 
part of the reason why it mm-hmm. still is like people still look up to these two individuals today because it, the media kind of almost like propped them up as li- as almost like um like action movie heroes and it's it's kind of the same with with gone girl it's like the media decided that nick was bad and that was the end of the story and and they won't even admit mm-hmm. that they're playing a part mm-hmm. there's a beautiful moment talking it's the second interview that he does that kind of wins him the love of everyone i forget her name um really well-known actress played her she was a lovely moment but she's ta- like they're talking about the facade of everything in the story they have to tell and it, it, it does something and then she turns to go and she's like oh i don't know how you're gonna paint this one well turns around and we see her entire back mm-hmm. of her jacket has been pinched in with bulldog clips which is something we do often in film and in daytime television that is something that happens all the time but it was such a beautiful moment of i think jillian flynn and david fincher really did a beautiful job of holding up just a little bit of a mirror to their own industry and to the idea of of news and uh the kind of um industry that is pop culture i would argue that pop culture is its own industry now because of the billable network and nature of the internet um and so this idea that you know they're they're all meant to be laughed at a little in this but ultimately that like they're they're so ridiculous but they really heavily affect everyone's opinion on nick i think is such a true statement to what we are experiencing daily um even in the last election it was so much of what the media people thought of trump and biden and not actually what they were saying i i knew it like daily it would take me so long to dig and find actual quotes and actual statements of what both um candidates stood for i mean obviously being a queer person in america i could not stand uh for you know the the previous administration that we had, but also there are a lot of things that I went, Oh, you know, everybody likes Biden, but I don't know anything that he's actually saying or anything that he's standing for. And, and the things that he's promising along the way, um, that we're just now figuring out and like hearing about, and it's, they're turning all of these people into talking heads and not in the way that we should necessarily remember because it's not giving us the information we actually need. Um, and, you know, it makes makes the person a villain mm-hmm. even when they're not the villain or until they're proven the villain. Because I still like to think of the idea that you're innocent until proven guilty. I, I still love to run with that idea, which is, again, apparently a novel yeah. concept in our country today. <laughs> um, just because of how our, you know, I don't understand how anybody can go to be on a jury for a trial and not know anything about what's happening because everything is so widely covered anymore even locally there's so much that's covered um i mean just listening to five or six different podcasts in the last month so many huge trials had to be thrown out because it turned out that two people said they didn't know anything to get on the jury but they thought that the 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 person on despite all um evidence thought they didn't do it and they wanted to be on that jury to make sure that that happened and it's just I feel we're negatively affecting justice by how uh, public we're making knowledge and how public we're making a lot of things happen, even though people want to know because they want to connect. Yeah, it's wild. It's it's wild, though. I've 
I have to ask you, I want to know, because we talked about Jillian Flynn a little bit. I want to know about who some of your influences are as a writer and a creator. Um, because uh, I, your podcast, which is the Dead Letters podcast, um, yes. is it's fictional. Yes, it's a fictional drama. Great. And, and then you've got your new book, Shadowcast, which just came out um, on the 25th of February. Um, I can't wait for everybody to find out where they can get it. But what inspires you to create and live in this kind of horror? Um, when it comes to writing things that are, um, that are thriller and there's no sort of uh, supernatural horror element. Cause I've, I write some short stories that have like a demon or a ghost, but just, you know, straight up like murder or a serial mm-hmm. killer or whatnot. Um, I do get a lot of inspiration from true crime. So I, I don't like pick one case and I'm like that case. And I'm just going to like, tweak it. It's like, I take these little mm-hmm. nuggets of information from all the, the cases that I, I hear about and just sort of mentally kind of store them away and then just bring them out into different stories of if I, I need like a, an element of, um, you know, like a motive, I might bring out like a, a motive that I heard some, um, you know, like a person who's now like long in jail for this crime. I kind of like pepper in that, that reality. And also, um, with this particular book, there's a missing person. And from the, you know, real true crime podcast I've listened to that will talk about a missing person's case, you know, it's really hard to figure out the missing person because we can't ask them. They're not really here anymore. And everyone who knew them as a, a, a person um, has their own opinion. It's like no one is, exists in a vacuum. So you're going to be seen by your parents differently than your best friend, than your boyfriend or girlfriend. And um, I wanted to, to in this particular story play into the the reality that it's kind of like trying to nail down a cloud like you can't really ever grab on to this person because everyone has a different idea of what is quote unquote true about the missing person Mm -hmm. i love that one i found that out so uh, a lot recently because i've been delving more into like a lot of True crime that was happening around my time that I was born, which is the mid eighties, um, which is when a lot of investigation techniques were being revolutionized pre DNA still, which is shocking to me. I feel like I've spent my whole life knowing about DNA research and things and D- DNA evidence, but they were like, bro, we couldn't process anything. We don't really know. Um, a lot of the times when people like, oh, well, such and such, it, we would this would never happen with such and such, or it's nothing like them. And it's everyone has a version of you in their heads or a version of the person. And that really heavily affected how investigations are run, how research is done, how they looked, who they spoke to. And it, especially in a lot of cold case trials, it has affected them being able to get to the truth. A lot of the times or being able to expand out, um, or I'll always love when you'll find they're suddenly realizing after 20 years, these 17 previously unconnected cases across the country were probably all the same person. And if they'd connected them earlier and then they're able to solve it almost immediately. Um, uh, but you know, it's, it's just wild about those things. Um, what are, do you have, uh, What are some of your earliest kind of moments where you felt connected to this genre and just kind of felt um, drawn into I it? I feel like there's kind of like a few like linchpin moments for, for me. One is seeing Psycho for the first time when I, I kind of realized that 
I didn't know mm. back then I wanted to write necessarily, but it was like, I wanted to be in that space. I, I, I don't have like the words for it. Cause I was I, I, young. I was like maybe 10 or 11. And I just knew that this was like my thing was like suspense and some psych psychology, which I know nowadays like is really old school and, and kind of upsetting to queer people. But the, you know, just like trying to figure out why Norman Bates did the thing that he did was interesting because as far as I know, um, mm. I hadn't really seen any scary movie or, or detective thing where they really kind of stopped at the end of the movie and was like, this is why he is this way. And I liked that, um, like figuring stuff out. And I just always found um, whether it be, you know, like adults telling me or older kids telling me these like crazy stories of, oh, did you hear about like the crazy killer who chopped off a woman's head and, and left it by the police station, like all these like tall tales that I couldn't even figure out if they're real or not. I just was fascinated by, mm -hmm. you know, people doing crazy things and, and dark and scary things and trying to figure out why did they, they do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I, I realized that I have always, well, I'm, I'm, I'm what's known as a soft boy where I'm from. <laughs> and so I've always been kind of afraid of everything. And I didn't realize that I've always been kind of surrounded by kind of true, true crimey things that were happening. Like, um, I was, I lived in on the 95 corridor during the 90, uh, the I-95 um. sniper in 2003. And it was like in my town and the, um, like the, uh, there was a abduction that made national news that happened to one of my classmates when I was in middle school on all these little things that I've, I was always kind of afraid of as a child or one of the D and D murders that happened of like the dungeon masters telling their, their teams or their, their group of, uh, players to go kill their parents was a family friend of mine. Like there were all these things that I didn't know existed until I started listening to true crime and like delving back a little bit. And I went, Oh, I'm afraid of everything, but somehow I love this and it gives me a little comfort for some reason. So I feel like it's always been there and I finally leaned into it recently, which has actually been really nice and somehow helped my anxiety. No, it helps to... me too. Like for some reason, because oh, I'm no. an anxious person and for some reason, um, like putting on a true crime podcast or, or just like a no sleep podcast where it's, it's like fictional um, kind of calms me down. I don't know why i mean i i just feel like i don't know it's kind of nice we like we live in a society where um we're kind of expected to be happy all the time we're trying to and if you are anxious or depressed you're kind of expected to put that on the back burner and you're not supposed to talk about it and the the energy i guess of a, a true crime or a a scary podcast um or movie whatnot acknowledges the the scarier, darker thing. So it's like they kind of match, I think, like an emotional equilibrium that mm -hmm. it kind of allows me to just sort mm -hmm. of chill out versus being forced to pretend that like, oh, life is all happy and amazing all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I made a promise in 2020, kind of once we went into lockdown, um, for years, there's always been that joke that like, we all ask, hey, how you doing today? And we all go, oh, you know, fine. Just the same thing, different day. And it's because we don't actually have an investment in knowing how other people are feeling or getting emotionally invested in people even when they're close to us. And so in like 2020, I said, and I'm trying to carry it into 2021, is that like, 
you know, if I'm not having a great day, if I'm at work, I'm obviously going to just be like, oh, you know, we're here, we're living, we're doing the thing. Um, but, you know, to people I know, uh, being transparent about the way we feel because it's actually opening up that idea for us to experience explore who we are as people because I'm realizing there are people who I've known most of my life that like we're close or whatnot, but I don't know things about them. Like I still don't always understand how they tick or how they interact in social situations, even though I've been with them because most of us put on that act so much, which is we then see when something happens to us, that's the thing people pick on and are suddenly being picked apart by psychoanalysts and things where you're like, Oh, suddenly I'm being put under the microscope. So, you know, maybe I won't have to be scared of taking a polygraph if I'm more honest with people of, of how I'm feeling. Um, so I want to talk about Shadowcast a little bit, what inspired it and give us just a little bit of a byline to kind of pull people into, to go. Yeah. So, um, Shadowcast, it's a dark psychological thriller. It is about Dakota Kilroy. She is a investigative journalist who is forced to return home after losing her job. And she starts a true crime podcast to try to figure out what happened to her best friend, Maddie, who went missing, but she doesn't realize that someone very sinister is listening into her podcast and messing with her investigation. <laughs> I love that. I, when I saw that, I, I just finished, um, Helen gone recently. It's a podcast about a, a murder in the Ozarks years ago. And, um, uh, I'd, so when I read, when I read this, uh, description i went oh this is going to be something i'm going to love i feel like there are lots of twists and turns and so i've already downloaded it i can't wait for for everyone else to read it but what inspired this particular the, um the several true crime podcasts but also like the most notably serial because like serial um true crime garage and generation y are the ones that kind of got me into this genre and um, with Serial, there was a moment where she talked about how there's a potential that um, the person who killed Heyman Lee was, could have been a serial killer. And that kind of just like popped in my mind that like, what if mm -hmm. she's been this whole time, she's trying to figure out whether or not it's a nod or, or not. And it's actually just some, some rando who, and if this, you know, it was back in the nineties, so it's not really that long ago. Um, and if this, you know, very dangerous mm -hmm. person was still, you know, alive and free, you know, not in prison for anything else, they could just come after the, you know, the investigator. And I, I had that idea of um, with Dakota, she's really putting herself in a vulnerable position because she's not a cop. She doesn't have a gun or a badge or anything to really protect herself. And yet she's trying to find what out what happened with this cold case and the perpetrator is still alive and free and it's just a you know kind of a cat and mouse game of of them trying to figure it out before the other person i love that um so i see that mm -hmm. you published it through black rose writing uh who's an indie publisher what made you decide to go with uh an indie publisher because i'm seeing a lot of people i know who are writers making this this choice what what is a benefit for you or something uh that you find that um you get a lot more one-on-one -on -one attention and you get a lot more creative freedom you have the, the ability to um have a bit more of a say in your cover a lot of people don't know if you go traditional they basically give you a cover and you have very little like pull i mean if you're someone famous like stephen king you might be able to get away with critiquing oh i want this on the cover but um if you're a, a newish author 
you kind of just have to go with what they say for the most part. Um, and with a an indie publisher, you get to be more of a collaborative endeavor, which I, I really enjoy because I want their input, but I, I don't want them to just take over. Like this is like ours now almost. And um, also the, yeah, the creative freedom, you know, I felt a lot of pressure to write very conventional. There's a trope I like to call spineless girl gets a spine in the, the thriller world. And I, I mean, I'm sure you know what I mean when I d describe it. It's a, like a, a very kind of mealy-mouthed, mm -hmm. weak woman who's scared of everything. And she has to uncover the mystery and like everything upsets her. And I, my protagonist, Dakota, is very strong and serious and a bit formidable. Um, and... I felt a lot of pressure to sort of conform to that spineless girl gets a spine trope. And I just didn't want to do that. I don't want to conform to like mm -hmm. uh, what's out there. I read this one thriller novel where the girl like wobbled on her feet every like five pages. There was just like, and I wobbled on my feet with shock. And I just was like, everything scares you. Like I was just annoyed. I was like, I don't want my female investigator to be this like wobbling on my feet, mm -hmm. scared of everything. So I just, I wanted to write you know, what felt right to me and, and the independent space really does allow you more creativity in that, that way. Well, especially if she's an investigator in a very patriarchal and misogynistic law enforcement realm that we have in the U S she, she would mm -hmm. know how to stand on her own two feet and be strong in order to have like fought her way to any sort of career. So it's just, I find that much more realistic and I love, yeah. I love, a, I love a bad bitch. I love a woman who know, I just love that. And I think, I think it's necessary in the, the true crime genre because it opens them up to also being a victim in some way, shape or form. And I, you know, mm -hmm. I'm tired of seeing all women as victims in, in media. And I think, I think it's time we move on from that. So VP, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been so much fun. I'm going to give you some time. Tell the audience about all of your projects and where they can find you across the internet and where they can buy your um, Yeah, so for Shadowcast, it is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble through um, either print or ebook. And you can also go to my publisher, which is Black Rose Writing, and get it there. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at T right or peach. That's T E A W R I T E. And um, you can find the dead letters podcast on pretty much all podcasting platforms and um, through the Twitter handle at dead letters pod. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I hope we can have you on again. Oh, I'd love to. Thanks for having me. It was so much fun. Can you believe we've been friends for seven years? And it all started because I compared you to Alana the Lioness. Tamara Pierce really set the tone of our friendship. A love of magic. Briar Moss. Fantasy. Briar Moss. Powerful women. And of course, Briar, Briar Moss. Moss. I'm Anna. And I'm MJ. And we invite you to join our Circle of Friendship. Where we do a chapter-by-chapter -chapter deep dive into the Circle of Magic series by Tamara Pierce. We answer important questions like, how does Moonstream let certain dedicates take care of children? Can you imagine anyone else but Mandy Patinkin playing Nico? Knives, Briar. And Knives! Join us every other Monday at cofpodcast.libsyn.com or wherever you download podcasts. But seriously, Knives...
Thank you again for listening to Saturday Morning Confidential. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick. Make sure you go right now to the internet and check out vpmorris.com where you can find out everything about Shadowcast uh, and VP's upcoming projects. It was fantastic to have her on the show. We wrapped up our 25th anniversary crossover episodes with Let's Rewatch, Another Pass with Sam and Case, as well as Fun and Games with Matt and Jeff. You can find all of those at the Saturday Morning Confidential thread on CertainPOV.com. Thanks to Brett Eagleston for the use of the music at the end of this episode. And join us next time as I'm joined by Mitch Pompayak from Geek Elite Media as we find out, are the Goonies good enough? As we discuss the 1985 blockbuster, The Goonies. Now join us next time for another deep dive into the files of Saturday Morning Confidential. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.